Welcome to Witch, the women in technology creative industries hub, elevating the voices of women in tech. My name is Bishi, the founder of Witch. In this podcast, I'll be talking to a woman in tech about her work, journey, life, and process. In this episode, I'll be talking to artist, body architect, founder of Future Beauty, Future Bodies, and mother of the emotional makeup movement, Alex Box. Please do like, review, and subscribe. We're a new podcast, and every bit of support helps. Hello, Alex Box, and welcome to Creative Women in Tech podcast. How are you feeling now that lockdown is starting to lift? Oh, wow. Um, I feel quite, you know, I feel really joyous today. Um, as I was saying a little bit before, when we had a little bit of a pre-chat that um, I am part of a Buddhist group and we had a, a, an amazing um, two-hour meditation class last night that was working on chanting, but also a body scanning, which is quite funny seeing as I do a lot of body scanning in tech, but they call it body scanning by scanning for your body. And it was just, um, it was just really lovely. I actually fell asleep in a little bit of it. And I just thought, you know, I wouldn't have been on that Zoom Buddhist group if it wasn't for lockdown, if it wasn't for COVID, I wouldn't have probably committed to going in person. But the fact that I did at the first start of lockdown, and have carried on every Wednesday since. It's been a real constant and something that's just really, I can't unknow now. So um, I'm definitely, I'm in there now. So it's kind of like, it's affected a lot, but I don't know, it's been a funny one because the first, I think the first lockdown, that kind of rush of adrenaline of everybody saying, right, I'm gonna go and bake bread and I'm gonna learn jujitsu and because we all don't know what's going on. I think this like sort of um, an, an almost like sort of naive quest to just reach humans. Um, this is second, third time around. It's almost like people are, are really fatigued, you know, and, and I think there's a kind of like um, the opposite, that massive opening up has kind of made you edit down, but have more quality conversations. So the rise of the sort of clubhouse, which I, I, I do adore, I really, really enjoy it, but it's the sort of quality, people want some of the stimulus taken away. So like clubhouse is great, you can't see anything and you're just listening. I'm mm. uh, obviously like podcasts the same. It's almost like you have to, you know curate your sensorial overload and like edit down what you need and, and and what you've got energy to do so at the moment I'm just coming out of homeschooling and I've got a puppy as well which was probably the stupidest thing I've ever done in lockdown but it she's amazing but it's been so much to try and juggle an eight-year-old and a puppy uh, and work and even have time to think creatively I've felt this time around it's been really really tough so I think I'm just peeping out of the peeping over the sort of parapet really to sort of start thinking uh about what it is that I want to do right this moment mm. yeah yeah and so is your eight-year-old back at school now yes okay. yes he is and he and the, I mean that's huge because all you do is you know care about the sort of psychological welfare of them and it's been so tough on them yeah. you know I mean, he's very self-sufficient. He's an only child. I'm an only child. My partner's an only child. We've got this kind of only child's club. But, yeah. um, and, and they are very self-sufficient in that way, but it, they just need human contact. We all do. But there's a sort of, there is definitely them going back does create an order that you are used to that does give a little bit of a hint of sort of um, 
not a normality because I don't, I don't, I don't really trust or worry too much about normality, but um, a, a sense of order that feels familiar, which is obviously soothing, which kind of definitely kicks up some dopamine and, and, and sense of kind of um, returning to something. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I'd like to welcome you as the first non-music-based creator to The Witch podcast. And your name and your work and career is associated with complete fashion legends, uh, the likes of Vivian Westwood, Issy Miyake, Alexander McQueen, Gareth Pugh, Nick Knight, and Rankin. And I found a really beautiful quote. I create characters, personas, and performances on a human canvas. How would you define your practice? Uh, well, thank, first, let me thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, and I'm sure I follow many people that are crea great creatives, fellow creative women. Um, I mean, my, my practice, I think, is like a sort of 360 holistic view on emotional narrative. Um, and how that takes shape is driven very much by material, if I'm honest. I mean, I'm inspired by material. I get, um, it's almost like finding a material, the narrative just falls out of its being uh, and, and its placement. And I guess it's sort of cerebral connection with, with me. I mean, I spend a lot of time in nature and I live, I moved from London three years ago and into the Cotswolds and into sort of quite a wild, untamed nature actually. Not what, I mean, I was brought up in the countryside, but not like this. I mean, this is kind of wild ponies and, and, and you know, roots that have not been trodden and, and being in something that's so sort of wild, but also sort of so, um, I guess, so sort of giving um, and peaceful. I've, it's opened up a lot of connection for me with um, the space that I didn't realize that I had blocked off in the city. So my creation, like I say, is very much about creating emotional narratives and connection to material, but it living on the body. Um, and I think that kind of, the body as an environment, but also as a tool of connection and storytelling is something that it, the way that manifests is, is through the materials that I either bring to it or it reflects off. So a lot of the time, um, characters kind of develop from their interaction with material and, in envir and in environmentally. And so I think that's why I work with a lot of, you know, like Wayne McGregor and a lot of contemporary dancers and, and musicians understand what I say by visual landscapes and, you know, it's almost like the body is in an environment, but it also affects and echoes out into that space and, and it echoes back. So you're never just kind of one thing in a space. It's like you're working in harmony with the acoustic, with the visual, with the, with the sense and essence, and then the memory of a person and where that lives in your, in your mind. And so there's what I, you know, as, as a creative around the body and using it like, you know, I call it body architecture, it's exactly that. It's the environment of, of the person, but not only the emotional connection and the resonance it has with the, you know, interaction, but also the the history, the placement, the the um, yeah, the essentially the emotional canvas of the body, and what that is, and, and how that can be translated, and how it can connect with people and, and storytelling. What was the first piece of technology that impacted your creativity? Uh, Photoshop 2.5. <laughs> uh, bang. Yeah, because um, it really did. It was just so funny. I was talking about this the other day. Um, I, when I was, I was at Chelsea Art College and I was doing a BA, um, I was in 
I kind of went in as a painter and I came out as a multidisciplinary artist. And that was a really dirty word back then because, yeah. uh, you know, you had to be a painter or a sculptor and, you know, you had to be down the old school kind of, you know, Jasper mm. Johns or Michael Craig Martin. And, and it, it was funny because Chelsea then was very, very driven by old school painters. And, but it was on the edge of, um, you know, inviting so many cool visiting lecturers and they didn't really know what to do with me. So I got these incredible visiting lecturers. So I had Jake and Dinos, Dinos Chapman came in and uh, immediately got what I was trying to do and talk about. And I had, you know, Gladstone Thomas and some amazing people that really said, look, you know, you know what you're doing. It, it isn't based on painting or sculpture. It's, it's telling a story and it's in any medium and just do that and it's fine. So very quickly, it, that sort of narrative led me to very, uh, you know, an understanding of the body as narrative led me to Matthew Barney and Cindy Sherman and two people that definitely had a huge effect on me in the 90s and my early sort of exploration of the body really because I thought, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. That's exactly what, I, I'm not any one thing, but I'm, tr I'm using the body as a, as a, as a you know, as, a, as the focus. So photo, I, I did these pieces and I wanted to make multiples of myself. Uh, and I was made, I did this kind of thing of, of me putting a tent up and it was like the process of putting a tent up, but I wanted sort of 25 of me. So I kind of just, um, at the time, my partner was an illustrator and he was just using um, scans and using Photoshop. And I got to kind of grips with Photoshop and um, it was just, it opened up a whole new world for me. And, and I immediately realized like, you know, this is, this is what this is everything you know I can just envisage on my own I don't have to sort of get you know all these kind of elements in that were very sort of uh, clunky uh, in a technical way in the college they you know they only had the foundry and stuff like that so you know I need I need to do but what was quite interesting is that one of those pieces with the tent was using I wanted to put this kind of thing under my skin it was like a uh, an aeroplane 3d thing that I'd made and so I got a book out um at the Chelsea Library on um, prosthetics. So I, I, I rang up all these numbers to get this kind of whatever it was, latex and stuff. So I was finding myself going on these journeys like Charles Fox and places that I'd never heard of to find all these kind of amazing um, materials to just do what it is that I saw in my head. So I was mixing these mediums and these ancient books of, you know, um, prosthetics by Rick Baker who did uh, Thriller who now I know is a really good friend and you know years forward fast forward I met I met him doing a performance um, and he was sat in the front row with his arms crossed and it was like slightly intimidating but he um, that mixing that with Photoshop 2.5 it was just amazing because um, it just gave me the chance to create something that also if I'm honest I had to really back up with it being slick because I was there was so much um, critique and sort of skepticism about emerging digital art forms that it was like, it was, you know, it was crass, that you almost had to make it so bloody good looking that they couldn't argue with the quality to actually verify it or vilify it or get any kind of, cred, um, you know, any kind of foothold in the art world in that, at that time. So I spent all my money on the first dye sublimation print that was in this, um, <laughs> in this uh, printers in Soho. And I was so excited to get this copy, you know, I had to dial it in and take it down there. And so it was, it, yeah, it was, it was a real moment. And I was revisiting that the other day and thinking of how fast everything is now, but there was a, 
yeah, it was it was a big deal, but it was also it it made me think about why I was doing that, but why also it was expected of to, to have some kind of almost expense to it to to um to stop it from you know they, there was such a doubt about digital and it, it being so throwaway that it almost had to look and be expensive to be able to for people to get their head around it. Yeah. And what was the first fashion-based project that started turning your attention towards technology? Um, let me think. I think, well, early on, um, one of the first one of the first collaborations I had was with a designer that back then had a uh, a um, design label called Suture. Um, and they were doing things with performance artists and, and dancers and um, which was kind of, you know, un, sort of unheard of back then. And they used to be AD and they used to make Lee Barry's clothes. And, and one of the two of that partner partnership, Philip Delamore is, is my husband. So um, we met all the way back then when he was a fashion designer and he was, he was using micrography slides to make digital print. And that was just like, what, you know, super, super, super early, um, you know, printing techniques, but also using digital printing. You know, it was it was a really big deal. And um, I was married up to him, you know, as a collaboration because I was making things on the body as an artist. So a friend of ours, who's an artist, I said, you should collaborate together. So we did an art piece at the Milch Gallery, I, I seem to remember. And that was me, my work put in the fashion context, which was, it wasn't before I was showing, uh, you know, at the Mills Gallery as a, you know, doing installation art and things like that. So it suddenly came a fashion context. And one of the things that we made was uh, we were talking about when, you know, before 3D printing came out, you know, is there a way that we could make uh, skin? You know, could we make skin that was um, bonding people together but it was a fabric but was it a skin was it a fabric you know it was like kind of playing with this idea of like flesh hoods at the time and we we sort of like worked on this kind of yeah digitally printing on latex and and making skins that attach people together and that was probably my first introduction into digital processes and heat pressing and and so sort of just use that textural exploration um that really kind of I was, I guess, then went into a fashion context. Um, yeah, yeah. That, I mean, that that was much more process based. But I think one of the more obvious applications of what I was doing with digital was, um, I mean, there's a couple of things. Like I made these light LED light mouthpieces for Gareth for a show that the models wore under their tongues that when they the show finished at the end and the lights went down, they all came out and they had this kind of grill of light. But um, this was before, you know, you can buy things like that on Alibaba now, but you know, <laughs> back, back then I literally was you know, soldering uh, LEDs together and stuff like that. And it was quite basic, but it looked really techy. And I kind of loved, I loved that. And I also used one of the only, um, I made these eyepieces as well for him. A lot, I mean, a lot of the process that looked like it was, quite simple was actually behind the scenes quite difficult um, and techy. I used laser printing, a uh, laser cutting, sorry, at the Royal, uh, at the at Goldsmiths to cut these black and white eyepieces that we did for his first Paris collection. Yeah. Which, what, sorry. Which year was that? No, sorry. Like, which oh, uh, I think yeah. it was like two, 2010, 2010, I think. Okay. Um, so there was, 
but ongoing in that, you know, there was a lot of it was coming out of the research that Philip was doing when he opened the, uh, um, my partner, when he opened the um, first digital, uh, be a, uh, first digital graduate um, course and the digital studio at LCF, they were doing so much research and so much um, academia around digital research, but not and not applying it. So it was all academia. So I was kind of grabbing these nuggets of things that were coming through that studio thinking, God, that could be this, could be that, could be that. So 3D printing, actually before, actually with Gareth, before that laser cutting, now I'm remembering the sort of paper trail, I scanned, I did 3D scan of my head and then I vacuumed for, I, I made these uh, in very early haptic tool. I was um, extruding kind of shapes from my face. And then I took, I did a 3D print of that and then did a vacuum form face mask of that and then painted it. And then all the models had that for one of his earliest shows actually. So that was, that predates that now. It's funny when you start remembering, you're like, oh, hang on a minute. There was something yeah. before that, you know. So that was really interesting because, um, you know, just to be able to make <clears throat> using a haptic tool, which I'd never done before in a in an almost like a clay sculpture. Um, so it had the resistance, you know, uh, was super exciting, you know, and, you know, the haptic pen as well. So we could, you know, draw these things in, in real time and create a mesh, uh, a, a mesh work was, you know, more exciting sometimes than the output <laughs> you know yeah. the exploration was the and still is you know the thing that really is like whoa you know the exciting bit um sometimes the application slows it down because it's lost you know it's lost in the melee but um yeah that so there's quite a few things and actually the more i think about it i'm probably on earth more that predates that but those are the things that spring to mind immediately yeah amazing and I read that using digital fabrication techniques and simple electronics, you created a range of startling face artworks. I think you began to describe a little bit of that in the work with Gareth Pugh, but could you expand more on, on these face artworks? Yes, in, in pure digital form or with, um, uh, because so, uh, I'm wondering yes. if that's referring to the, to some of the, um, the light painting that yes. I did or yeah okay so yeah. um with the light painting that came sort of that came sort of in tandem with um a software package that I made a software application that I made with Microsoft called Splashbox which was um a using the connect sensor to read the space frame as digital paint. So what I was, uh, just after the ranking book, I, I formed such a great relationship with Charlie Wright, who was the model, um, and I loved her face. And we had such a, you know, such a great relationship. I, I asked if she would let me 3D scan her, her face and she was up for that. And back then 3D scanners were, the head scanners were, you know, quite like, you know, <laughs> instruments of torture. Uh, and you'd have to, you know, face clamped and stuff. So we scanned her head, and I made this kind of like alabaster sort of, you know, almost like a, a white bust of her head. Uh, and then I worked with this great developer who was a, a, he was working at the fashion digital studio and went on to be that amazing developer for Microsoft. And we, and I said, look, I really want to be able to throw virtual makeup or paint at her face at the 3D space, but it, it to, to move and have the resonance and texture and, 
life force of paint because I've seen so many programs and it's like you know it is what it is but it doesn't drip or have physics you know it doesn't have opacity I mean opacity is the holy grail anyway but it you know what can we do uh so we worked on this for ages and and at this at the time of sort of like working on it I was developing also the idea of perform, uh, performance and building characters and that kind of marriaged up with Mac offering to support that uh, as a process and it to be part of a ongoing performance that I would work for uh, I would do with Mac um, with Mac Cosmetics so they um, they supported that research and I made Squashbox and it kind of like it, it really it really was very early and when I did it in the performance and some of the performances were very private and some of them were like there was a thousand people at I did it on stage and people had no idea what I was doing. I mean, we're talking like sort of 2007 or eight. And uh, and it kind of just, you know, it was lovely because I did this kind of physical performance. So then I did this at the end and it was set sort of night on a bare mountain. And, you know, it seemed like really like, wow. And I'm going to bring in bringing uranium to the crowd. And, and it, it just almost, I think in a way fell flat because no one knew what I was doing. So we waving my arms around things appearing, but it, it was too early and it was it was you know it was like you know I've had to sort of just explain it recently and and at that time you know I was thinking about how can we how can I do um how can I how can I digitally either project or face map or I mean it wasn't called face mapping then but how mm. can I get a new form or texture using digital onto the face so that then led me to the idea of projecting Photoshop um, or Illustrator uh, onto a face, and I thought I've got to find a way of doing this and capturing it. So I started to use that as a as a as a way of being able to, in a live performance situation, I got it. So I, it was almost like a project a projector, but um, I kind of fine tweaked it so it was just within the stillness of the face, uh, and obviously it had to be she had to be very still. But I painted uh, two music responding absolutely integrally I mean it's absolutely intrinsically it's to music um whatever came to me as a doodle as a sketch as a as a form of of drawing and it was projected onto the model and that was filmed and the photographs were taken of it as well so um and I combined that with the splash box as well so it was kind of like using the same model so what I did in the performance is that she was she was on the stage and I was doing this and then she disappeared and then the 3D version of her came back and, and I did it in Splashbox. So it was just to try and push at the boundaries and sort of like understanding an identity, but also surface and how those can be represented. And I think that is the journey that I'm just always on is about how can we push at that? How can we re-represent beauty? How can we adopt new ways of telling a story with the face? Yeah. Yeah. And wow, <laughs> I actually slightly lost my place in my questions because I was so I was so taken away by all of that. But are you developing more technological kind of more like the intersection of, of kind of like, I guess, makeup's a bit of a sort of a basic word in this context. But I guess kind of, you know, like, let's say like human canvassing and kind of electronic and and technology like have you thought about doing anything with with kind of AI and things like that or oh yeah absolutely yeah. um very much <laughs> so yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, that naturally led me into um, in, into uh, virtual reality and yeah. um, uh, augmentary, augmented reality. And yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. So yeah. that also being and doing what I do, even though you think you're making it in a vacuum and no one can see it, people do see it, you know. Uh, and um, I started, to, obviously, to I reconnected with Wayne McGregor, who is absolutely wonderful and very forward thinking and, and doing the same with the body uh, in dance. And we started to work with Oculus and, and the, Royal, um, the Royal Opera House and in our ongoing, our ongoing um, sort of projects as well about how how an audience intersects and can it be inside the experience whilst not being inside the experience and and how the body can be represented in augmented reality um but but cerebrally how you can connect and how you know ai and and uh, machine learning can kind of build be built within that as well and the emotional body and the emotional uh, metasphere uh, absolutely. And, and I mean, I was talking yesterday with Epic Games about the metaverse and the metahuman and there's a lot, there's a lot. I mean, but it, it's also, I'm, I'm right in it, you know, and I'm happy to be so, but it's, it's like, it keeps, sometimes keeps me awake because I, I can see it. I've been seeing it for ages, you know, and it's like, it's been accelerated from COVID for sure. Uh, and I think that What's exciting to me is people are open now. Their ears are open to technology. There's a gold rush for sure. I mean, I've literally fried from NFT talk for the last sort of week because that's so huge for people and so hard to understand, but then not hard to understand. And then it feels like everybody's got fear of missing out on this, you know, ground floor level entry, you know, decentralization of art and music and all things. Um, so there's, there's suddenly like this glut and interest and like hunger for digital, but equally with, it's so, um, even though there's a lot of advancements, it's still in its kind of aesthetical infancy. And there's a sort of like a real, a real kind of um, rush to just, just let's do digital. And it's like, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> you know, there's, um, you know, we're trying to build a, you know, in the race of things being so quick, people are, are really skimping on what really is taste and digital morality and uh, and and um, a standard in a way, you know. And I think that people don't know what good digital and bad digital is yet, and they will. I mean, they'll become more au fait with that. And I don't mean that as a sort of, you know, um, a hierarchical thing. It's just that you you know what you, you know you intrinsically know that something could be better, or it's like of, of a quality or of a of, a, of a, an understanding what's, what, what, how something is made. Um, yeah. I know I veered off track a little bit there, but yeah, no, I, it, there's so much of um, the technology that lends itself to the experience. And I mean, really, as we do move into, you know, meta humans and the metaverse, and I mean by that is everything just being one, you know, the, the story, the narrative and the emotional connection to why make it in the first place is, is gonna drive everything, you know? It's not enough for it to just look new. You know, it's not enough for it to just sound new. It's like, well, why would I care when there's everything, you know? And I keep saying it's like a time of so much knowledge, but so much, so much kind of, so much, yeah, so much information, so little knowledge, you know? So it's kind of like, we have to catch up with 
what we've created uh, and be sort of in you know really authentic about what what choices you make and how you make them what you, what stories you're going to tell you know and what and and actually as well like how much um you know political importance emotional in you know integrity and uh uh yeah you know how, you know how you tell the stories and who you tell, tell them to and responsibility absolutely and on the subject of emotions what is the emotional makeup movement oh okay <laughs> so that i was really i have been banging on that for so long because um obviously being and doing things on the face you know really kind of dragged me into dragged um that's quite telling isn't it dragged me into <laughs> being called makeup artist which has never sat sat well at all but i understand i understand why people would see that so you know i i definitely have done makeup more conventional makeup um and and happy to do so and enjoyed it very much and explored all of the kind of ramifications of that but what I found really interesting within that like soon as I sort of like was inside that world is like how the how the conversation and how the the words were never about emotions they're always about artifice you know and and motifs and and um fashion motifs or historical references or you know it was never kind of feeling based it was always and it was always a sort of like a yeah like motif based um like the red lip, the smoky eye, you know, the winged eyeliner, the the Betty Davies eyebrow. It was like it was always like referential. It was never sort of like spiritual, emotional, integrated, you know, um, unless it was about like make a film character. So when when I um and then it was kind of broken down into again more like again reference points. Um, so what I found was when I started to work um in shows that were with say like particularly I would say French designers that I um that had a like immense sensitivity to, to nuance in their work and in their clothes and and absolutely I attracted people that had this whole world of characters in their mind you know I worked with Veronique Leroy who who was you know she would sit literally say Oh, you know, she is a little boho. So, so, you know, she, she, she came out of a car and the wind hit her face. And, and then she, I love her. So love her was gay, but then she died. And that, she, you know, she would literally tell me this story about in her mind, what the character was. And then my, my assistants would look at me like, how the hell are you going to translate that into a person? But I am, I was on board hundred percent. I got it. I could see everything she was saying and it was emotional it was like an emotional palette there wasn't there was nothing in there was it like and I want a red lip or it's a, like the 60s or it's or it's you know Pierre Cardin or YSL in the 80s it, nothing not one thing was said it was like she's she's had an orgasm she's she died she did so in a way I was like well that is an emotional palette that is I'm seeing veins because somebody has been through adrenaline I'm seeing sweat you know so I'm going to get sweat I'm going to get veins I'm going to I'm going to make them look slightly tougher because they've been outside. So there'll be broken veins where the sun hit their nose. And so you're kind of anthropologically building an emotional landscape that is nothing to do with makeup, the way people talk about makeup. So I intrinsically did this. I didn't think anything about it. But until I went to talk about it to um, backstage when people are saying, so what foundation did you use? Yeah. And I was going, um well uh 
I did use this, but um, it's not really about that. And then I sort of thought, well, this is a great space to educate instead of sort of being snotty about it or sort of saying, well, it's not about a 0.2 eyeliner from MAC or something. You know, I said, look, you know, I'm creating a character, I'm creating a feeling and a vibe, and it's not necessarily something you see, but it's something you feel. So it's like, it's an emotional makeup. So um, I'm gonna describe what I'm doing with words that aren't used or normally within the beauty sphere. So I was saying, you know, when I put something on, I tell people to put it on as if they kind of breathed it on with a with a with an integrity that is coming from somebody that I loved before. And I asked that of my assistants. And and at first that terrifies people, but then they totally get it. Because it's still, you know, when you listen to music, you don't tell people how to listen to music, do you? I mean it's like yeah. you take it in. And that's one of yeah. the wonderful things about music, you trust and you feel and you connect and you just react. And that's why it's so pure. And I was like, please do that with makeup. So don't necessarily, you know, arrive at that how you want. Don't arrive at it with brushes. If you want to use your hands, fine. There is no technique. It's more about, you know, there is a technique I'm doing, but it, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just feeling it. So that's where that whole idea of emotional makeup came from. And then people started to connect with that and understand it. But it was very much and still is. Um, an important piece of work to be done around how people talk about beauty and makeup because it's still based in a language that almost is devoid of emotion. Absolutely. And I heard another podcast and you were saying some really interesting things about the evolution of social media and how we've all ended up with the same face, that kind of reality TV face. Yeah. And it was a really fascinating the the stages that you built up from, you know, the digital camera phone to then the selfie mode to the face and then the body and then the whole dysmorphic universe that we're sort of living in now. Could you talk us through that again? I mean, do you think that it's like I mean, I mean, we all love social media and hate it for, for different reasons, but do you think that it's do you think it's been more of a positive thing for people to express themselves visually or I think it's a mixed bag actually I I I think it's enabled people to explore and I think like any early adopter of of new things it starts out really good you know it starts out with the intentions of pure experimentation uh you know like instagram i started at the beginning with instagram and, and it was so organic and easy to find people and you know you'd put a hashtag in and you'd find exactly your tribe and interesting things yeah. now it's curated and, and orchestrated and manipulated into seeing just more of the same if not exactly what you don't want to see mm. uh, unless you make it a fake account and you know trick the algorithm but um yeah, I, I think that early early on, you know, um, obviously makeup was never a, it was never, it always had a place in trend and accessory, but it was never the trend, the accessory. And then when the phone um, suddenly had the, the selfie option, uh, the face became the commodity, the face became the advertising space, the, the centric space space for selling because you know more makeup in that space more more makeup on the face sells more product and because 
the selfie made uh, and the, you know the desire for and the rise of Instagram and the influencer, um, you know the now you have a much more capacity for body because you've got a, a depth of field and different camera angles and different sensors. But the first wave of smartphones, the selfie was the uh, centric and most involved way of showing yourself. So because of that, makeup became, you know, took center stage. And then the makeup blogger and the influencer became more so. But the, what happened was that kind of massive wave and spike inspired people to try it on themselves and become their own sort of influencer and they're in the how-tos and the, and the YouTube vlogs and things became a real viable way to become, you know, to basically have a boutique sort of market. But because of the rise of that, the rise of being told how to do it became almost way more um, followed and, and believed than the exploration that came from yourself. So it was suddenly like a deluge of being told how to be individual, how to individually create. Well, it's the same as Pinterest, the same as everything. You know, this is a, a massive, humongous kind of surge of examples, which you would think would inspire, but actually, if anything, it can close people down because they're relentlessly seeing things that they haven't done yet that may inspire, but also closes them down and think, well, I can't do it that well, or it's already been done, why would I do it? So there's, and also it's not an infinite amount because once people are all receiving the same sort of influence from Pinterest or Instagram or the algorithms given that, they just repeat the same things that they've seen. And because um, obviously the nature of like people want to like and follow, they fell into the traps of things that are popular and things that get likes. And then you get an endless sea of, of pulled back eyebrows and a winged eyeliner and a cut crease. And before you know it, that's it. And people don't show the creative things that they're creating at home in the bedroom because it won't get liked or it won't get followed. And yeah. it, it kind of killed it. I think, I think Instagram kills, I mean, that's why I made the makeup is dead long live makeup t-shirt because I felt that makeup as I've known it so far, and that kind of burgeoning exploration and excitement and explosion of, you know, things like Illamasqua and, and, you know, people beginning to sort of express themselves um, were suddenly closed down by the idea of actually um, there's a new motif and there's a new way of earning money and there's a new way of getting or garnering followers engagement by doing actually something that's very staid and is the same as what everybody else is doing. But then, then on top of that validation is that all of a sudden makeup, you could transform yourself into this kind of uh, beauty kit, you know, a, a, a tick, uh, you know, you could do the shading, do this, lashes, lashes, this, this, that, lip, that, that. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got this validation that that was a beautiful, um, like getting a handbag or a pair of shoes at the moment, that was the beauty face of the moment. And that, that was accepted. And, and in a way that was verified as beautiful but really, it's a kind of a motif. For the yeah. first time, it, it was a fashion accessory. There's mm. a look that became a fashion accessory. So that was adopted and obviously jumped on by all the companies that just want to sell more products. So in a way, uh, you know, there was contouring, then there was highlighting, then there was spotlighting, and then there was, you know, um, a glow on top of that. And it was just more and more and more, more product because obviously you can shift loads of units and why wouldn't you if you're a company you want to kind of endorse those things so it got really hijacked and the individualness the sort of like exploration of the self and the kind of panoply of things that you could be 
was really dialed down. And I think that that's, yeah, to the detriment of self-exploration and identity for sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I love Instagram, but the whole influencer market that it's, it's, I find it all so confusing. Like I, I mentor a lot of younger musicians and producers and, and artists. And I think there's a lot of anxiety because people aren't going out to clubs or I don't know, like, you know, Soho and East London, I, I, I try and describe to people, even people who are like 28 or 29, there's like not that much younger than me, but trying to explain to them that every night of the week there would be four or five different clubs and you'd go and you dress up and there was no uber so you would risk it going on the night bus there and back you know the whole ceremony of getting dressed up and going out and like that's where like that's where we would have seen each other and just Mm. being in awe of each other and thinking oh my god and yeah there was a select amount of publications and you know, it was always very heartbreaking if you didn't quite get included into those publications. But then you would create zines and, like, you know, yeah. you know, like people just create their own mad culture and they're still creating their own culture now. But there's something about being in the space and just sweating it out on the dance floor. And I feel like the selfie mode and this like accessorized like makeup face, which has also been hijacked by, you know, the Botox and fillet in yep. industry, this yep. identikit face. I think it's just out of people looking at themselves too much Mm. and not just being in the world and not just being messy and being together and being joyful. Um, It's hard enough, you know, it's hard enough when you're in your late teens and your twenties, when most people are just utterly adorable to look at. Majority of people, you just look adorable, but you're taught to hate yourself because of the pressure that society puts onto you. Mm. Um, and if you're constantly in selfie mode or if you're constantly doing FaceTimes and, and stuff, like I think it, I think the the pressure has become really, really immense mm. um, on, on young people. But on the subject of, of, uh, of the body as a sort of a holistic canvas, there are these really beautiful performances of you uh, creating makeup looks, but almost as a piece of holistic performance on YouTube. Could you talk a little bit about them? Because they're beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that that really sprang out of um, me doing um, the Mac performance and, and seeing that, uh, you know, I was asked to do a masterclass and I said, I, I have no idea how to do a masterclass. And I really don't. I, I don't. I, I'm just not that kind of artist. And I said, but I can create in my mind um, something that people may be inspired to engage into it's not a technique based thing but it's a happening so in I I was really kind of inspired to create characters over the top of each other from um what I was calling the evolution of surface but it was kind of it was from life it was like from amniotic life state to death as far as I could see it and and it was very much um I mean it's something that I I address a lot in my work is, is well, as we all do, birth and death uh, and everything in between life. Um, but I wanted to be able to, I wanted to pay, take people completely on that journey and be very fallible and very in the moment of creation, which most people aren't. I mean, uh, you know, nobody's sat, in, no, not nobody sat in the room with someone creating an album or, a, um, a, you know, a design collection or a, 
uh, any creation, it's usually a lot of the time it's quite private or it's very select or it's very, um, it, it moves in stages. It's over a, a space of time. It's not in an hour, you know, it's not in an hour and a half. So unless you go into performance art. So I sort of, um, I really wanted to bring all of the sort of um, things that move me and why I do what I do. And then also start to try and understand what it is that I am uh, as a as a creative um, when I put myself in a public realm because um, I am very much connected to and feel very strong healing things I always have I, I feel very extrasensory things I overfeel um, <laughs> um, I have very I get moved immensely and I, and I kind of thought well this is something that I need to share. Um, I feel very strongly that when I'm on stage, something happens that is um, from somewhere else that I, I really want to connect with and, and I'm, I, I want to understand that further. So I work very much with like a, a muse. I started very much off with the idea of this birth to, to death and um, exploration of surface. And, and that is completely and utterly guided by music. So I sort of made, I, I want, knew that in an hour, I wanted to create, you know, essentially three to four characters that went from the model being like no hair, no, you know, nothing on the head, no eyebrow hair, you know, completely neutral palette. Uh, and just having this kind of graphic equalizer of every kind of material and, you know, um, being open to the moment, knowing that there's, I'm gonna do this kind of very pale and amniotic, almost um, yeah, nude alien-esque surface first that then would go into color that then would go into um, you know this kind of intense kind of blackness so I didn't you know it's not it's not not premeditated but I wanted to be open to whatever would happen in that moment as well so to guide me I picked the music you know so I made like you know a playlist of music that would completely sonically move me and I would respond to and it had to be of the same texture, absolutely, of, of the character. So obviously I started very much in sort of um, Brian Eno and, you know, uh, uh, um, all this beautiful music from Solaris and um, and just real kind of ethereal, high Sigur Ross kind of like emotionally opening spaces uh, that moved then into like psychedelia and, and then moved very much into sort of, uh, music that was much more like the backwards backwards priest and um i used this um uh gosh i'm trying to remember what i use now but um a lot of kind of discordant chants and um demanda gallus and you know things that were really like uh, uh, things that i knew that especially because i was doing this globally so i went to you know i was in the states with it i went to india i went to um, russia and i knew that these some of these musics and sounds were really going to be things that other people hadn't heard uh, and would also, you know, provoke probably. But I, and I was, a, I was globally sensitive. There were certain things I didn't use in India or Russia and things, but um, the music was really, really important. So, and also along with the music, uh, the whole dressing of the, the models was, and made all the pieces of the body as well. So, and hair. So it was creating, like literally creating a person and, and evolving that, persona on stage and and I and I really picked the models very carefully and how they engage with the audience and I also create smells scents that were sent out over the crowd with each with each character too so really um 
what and then that was it it was like then let's go and it was um I wasn't I don't think that prepared for how epic it turned into and how much it transformed me because um it it really did I mean it makes me shiver now and and I have to be careful when I do it because I realize how much I the expenditure of performance I feel like like I'm a husk afterwards I'm sure you can relate to that oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) but it was really it was very it was very um inclusive and the audience were right there with me and because a lot of people said I've never seen a human face like go through all these incarnations but also how I responded to I didn't know where it was going next so I was sort of frightened almost um uh, and then I was like you know it reminded me of something so that started making me think of something and then I really you know people were crying because the music reminded them of something but then they were looking at something that reminded them of something else so there was this kind of like synesthesia or memory trip and so I got like the most incredible um response from it um plus like when I went to the states I, re- I knew I mean I, w- I knew that everything is so very like right there everyone wants to be right so things fell off and I could hear people you know I could try and stick like some prosthetic on and it fell off so like I just got some tape and taped it on and then it went with like and people just like oh my god oh my god it like it fell off and it's like it didn't stick for Alex box and like I said exactly that I said in and you put tape on you like fucking hell you know you stick tape on it and I it just went a different way and you went with it and I said well that's the performance the fallibility of creation isn't that it's just like perfect you know things happen and you go with it and you go somewhere else and that's okay and, and I, I realized really really quick that so much of what it was was not what I was doing but was what it stood for and and like you say like the accidents things falling over I worked with dancers that fell over music that didn't work and then I just started like clapping instead of music. And it was it that I realized so much that that was it. That was that was the message was that was the freedom to create in front of other people. But the actual, you know, fallibility of humans in front of other humans is so what's needed. And especially in the creative sphere that everything just pops out like perfect. And it just isn't, you know, it's really sweaty and it really has organic like chaos that you just go along with and a lot of people don't see that because they just see the end product you know absolutely yeah yeah well to finish off this podcast like I mean I could talk to you for hours and just on a really personal note I hope we do just keep more in touch yeah please I've I've been you know just like fascinated and just so blown away by the work that you've been in like involved in and I was looking at some things being like oh I'd love oh I'm gonna say it out loud oh god I'd love to collaborate with her on something I don't know what it is I just I just I just want to put it out in in the in the ether um but to finish this podcast I'm gonna ask you who is your favorite woman in tech oh they can be from any discipline which I know makes it even more confusing Oh my goodness, that's putting me right on the spot. Um, <laughs> oh, who's my favourite woman in tech? Oh, oh God, I'm thinking of entrepreneurs and thinking of, of of designers. Oh, that's really mean. Um, I mean, it's really funny because when you said tech, I for some reason my mind just went straight, which isn't tech at all, but I went straight to Louise Bourgeois because I always feel like even though she's not tech she's 
there's there's a, there's this kind of like multidisciplinary understanding of surface that I feel is technological. You know, it's like it's mm. it's boundary breaking. I mean, it's not tech tech, but I mean, obviously, you know, there's been amazing people. You know, obviously, Iris Van Herpen's been incredible, and she's opened loads of doors for for people. And obviously, there's Bjork and all these people. But I sort of feel like you know some of the people that I've seen that are emerging that I don't necessarily I, I would love to be able to give a platform for because they're not known yet that mm. are doing things like you know at the Royal College of Art there's there's so many um there's a, a you know really great and I, I want to I don't want to get their name wrong so I might be able to give you this you might put it in yeah but but great sort of um people working with identity non-binary artists that are just exploring identity from themselves but also through digital medium and and um using technology um and doing entirely digital collections but i tell you what actually now saying that she's not in tech but she facilitates tech and that's zoe broach that runs the royal college of art oh i love her yeah. <laughs> I, love, so, I love zoe so much so do i and i think she is like the uh, aggregator and galvanizer and supporter of tech. So, and tech in every organic, every, you know, in the purest form. And I love her. And I think that I would have to say her because I, I, I think that she's such an advocator of technology in, in an area that needs it, but also, you know, she she's just support as a supporter. So she's like, you know, she is burgeoning the careers of so many people uh, to cross-pollinate and use tech and support it, but also just honour it as an art form, but also as, you know, uh, uh, to, to create that humanware course where, you know, even just doing away with the idea of it being women's and menswear and it being humanware, it's like, you know, you need people like that in the world to just let, you know, basically give the tools to other people to be great. And, and she does that. So I'm gonna to have to say Zoe Broach. Absolutely. And she's also, I mean, I'm quite envious of her students. I wish I'd had a Zoe Broach exactly. when I was at art college because she just picks everything up, everything from like, I remember going to the Boudicca studio and everything from the scent of the Boudicca studio to how they eat to how they deal with food to how they deal with clothes as sculpture. I mean, she's, she's just this, it's, she's this sort of like, like censorious magnet of all the stuff. And she's also really wild and wicked fun. I mean, you know, I've, I've sat next to her at a few fashion dinners, you know, you can always tell Zoe the most shocking, the most filthy story and she'll love it, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I mean, she's a punk. That's what I love about her. And I think, you know, that that's the thing is that that energy is just so, you know, it it just regenerates, you know, and, and I think, you know, I, I hope that we're all like that, you know, that we regenerate and support other people. And, and that's the thing, she nurtures people and it's like a massive sort of nurturing and, you know, instinct in her to kind of just, yeah, you know, support and generate and, and, and lift up people. And I think that that, is in you know god it's super admirable and infectious and beautiful and also very you know how many people have we heard that, pe that just have squashed people for so long especially women yeah you know and and anybody that identifies as a woman you know it it's it's just this sort of 
understanding that that it is about connection and lifting up other people so she's brilliant for that and I, you know if you don't know her you know research her or look at what's happening at the rca and um yeah it's amazing she's amazing well alex box thank you so much well oh, thank you it's been wonderful thank you so much alex i can't wait to see how everything develops for you And thank you all for tuning in and subscribing. Thanks to The Rattle for all of their technical support on this podcast. You can find out more about Witch at Instagram, Facebook and Twitter.com forward slash Witch. You can go to Witch.com to find out news and updates and to sign up to our monthly newsletter. Until next time, thanks and goodbye.